Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things in the wine world with you. To find out more information about our show, please go to Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Our first topic today is about fruit flies and why a female fruit fly will ruin your wine, but a male fruit fly will not. What was your take on this, Kim? I was so fascinated by this article. Uh, this was an article that we found in New Scientist. And, you know, I we, we bring a lot of fresh produce and like things from the farmer's market and the farm into our, into our kitchen in the summertime. And, you know, we do get a fair number of fruit flies and they do like wine. And, you know, every once in a while, the wine would smell and taste kind of funky after that fruit fly maybe came a little too close to the glass and I never understood why until I read this article and it was like a light bulb went off in my head I'm like oh cool someone is actually explaining to me why my wine kind of tastes funky if maybe a fruit fly got in there so the whole thing about this is that female fruit flies as opposed to male fruit flies excrete a certain pheromone which even in teeny teeny tiny little quantities can totally ruin your glass of wine. Did you have any idea about this at all, Mark? No, no idea. But I hate fruit flies I don't in like general. Them no. But I thought the crazy test they did was they actually put a, a female fruit fly in people's wine and, and then they have them. them t- yeah, and they had them taste it. So I, I don't know. I just, I, it was a pretty interesting study. But in general, let's talk about fruit flies because I hate them. <laughs> I, hate them. I said that, right? Um, anytime we pour a lot of wine, fruit flies, and it seems like it's a seasonal it's thing totally to me. It's totally a summer thing, yeah. And I've tried, have you you tried anything to they have these things where you can put uh, vinegar in a cup and yeah. seal it and the thing won't get out and somehow they're getting out of everything I do I tried lemon oils but it tasted like you know it smelled like pledge so yeah. then it ruins it just ruins the whole wine experience so I'm just, I hate them yeah. I hate them I, I don't like them either the thing that we usually do in our kitchen is we'll do like a little like Pyrex glass little cup and we'll put either a piece of fruit like a peach usually works really well or a little piece of tomato and then a little bit of vinegar and whether it's like red wine vinegar or balsamic vinegar, but just a little bit. And then you cover it with plastic wrap and you make that really, really tight and you put a rubber band around it and then you poke a couple of holes in it. And sometimes it works great. Like we'll catch dozens of fruit flies and other times the fruit flies won't be interested at all. So, you know, it's kind of hit or miss on our little fruit, fruit fly trap, but that is what we've found works the best. And they were saying humans can't taste this. But you can smell it. But you it. can smell it in the wine, which, yeah. you know, I, it was very interesting. And that, you know, that kind of makes sense because when we're talking to people about their senses and about what you experience when you're tasting a wine most of what you are experiencing is actually through your your sense of smell so you might be feeling the tannins or tasting sweetness or tasting acidity but if your brain is sending you signals that oh this smells like peach or this tastes like oak or this tastes like blueberries or blackberries that's all coming from your sense of smell so what is happening in this instance kind of is is very similar it's it's like yes it's a a smell but your brain is interpreting it as it's a taste. And they did, when they did the test of putting the fruit fly in the wine, the experts, they said, detected it. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't fall. Did the, like a novice taster test it? I think too? they could tell that there was something a little off about it, but they couldn't necessarily put their finger on it. Whereas the people who, tasters who had experience with it could definitely,
definitely say, oh, yeah, this is there's definitely something wrong with it. And you're a beekeeper, so you can probably relate to this. But is there any way we can catch a female fruit fly and tra- check this out? Hmm. I, I, don't I don't think, think so. so. No. I don't think so. I don't know how we'd know. I'm not sure <laughs> I could tell the difference between a <laughs> yeah. female and a male fruit fly. Bees are a little bit easier. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim, and we can be found at franklinliquors.com and vinitaswineworks.com. Most people are familiar with the craft beer movement that has been popular for the last decade or so. And uh, there's now this new, I guess you could call it a certification specialization of the craft wine movement, which we ran across online. And sort of an interesting idea that people in the wine drinking community might be a little bit more interested in consuming wines that are small production, handmade, kind of wanting to have something that is a little bit more of artisanal product instead of something big and mass produced. Uh, So sort of interesting that this concept from the beer world is sort of transitioning over into the wine world. Yeah, they define a craft wine mostly as 5,000 cases of production or less. So the interesting thing to me was 90% of the wineries in the United States fall into this category. So this to me is a marketing idea that was developed. They do have to pay to be certified as a craft uh, winery, but it's a marketing tool as a group to allow people to compete with that 10% of the the big guys. Right. So even though 90% of the producers might be these really little guys, that doesn't mean that they're selling 90% of the wine. They're probably only selling 10% of the wine. So most of the wine that is purchased, especially in this country, does come from either big producers or big companies that own lots of smaller wineries. So when we're talking about a winery that produces fewer than 5,000 cases, that that actually is a legitimate small winery. And I like the idea that if they join this craft movement, they get a seal that they could use on their, their product to promote. Um, also, the cost was, I mean, 500 bucks, I think, if you're under, which I think is in, inexpensive marketing mm-hmm. for a winery that size. Would you, if you were buying a wine, Kim, and you saw the craft seal, first off, would you know of it as a, as a shop? or would you take any value to it? I don't know if I would necessarily know what the details were that the certification entailed, but I think enough people have understand the concept of craft whatever. And so that's an easy jump for people to go from, oh, thinking about craft beer or other small production products and then that leap to, oh, craft wine, this must mean something similar. So I don't think that it's necessarily anything that people would be like, oh, I understand that this means fewer than this few fewer than 5,000 cases, small handmade production, yada, yada, yada. But I think the word craft certainly would have resonance with people. My fear is that it's just going to fall into the the sustainable, the organic. Like yeah. there's so many things, salmon safe. There's all these things you can find, these associations that help people promote their wine. But it, it might just be white noise in, mm-hmm. the, in the wine movie. It's good for us because it's something more to educate people on. One of the things on the site they did have was you can find certified wines or certified wineries by state, which I thought was a good feature. Mm-hmm. And there was only one right now in Mass, Plymouth Bay. Actually, you couldn't search by state. You could only search wines, I think. So I didn't understand the search, why not yeah. state-based. But like, I did only winery. find one in, in Mass. So, I mean, it's a slow movement. Uh, I do see value. Um, I'm not sure if people... It's going to take education to let people yeah. know. Yeah. You know, maybe you now you'll have a craft wine section. Um, I, I think it's good for wine. 
You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are a host, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to find out more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. To find out more information about Kim and her company, please go to vinitaswineworks.com. Now let's talk about an interesting article that was stop worrying about wine myths and drink up. Kim, what was your take? And, and of course, there's another five things. <laughs> right. There's always five or seven. This is our list of things to, to, to talk about. You know, I actually agreed with most of these. There was one that I was a little kind of mm, shaking my head at, but one of the ones that actually I liked was stop worrying so much about pairing the right wine with food. And I try to tell this to people all the time. You know, people s- still seem to think that, oh, you know, there are rules. I have to drink this with, th- with this. And then there's the flip side of it, which is people say, oh, just drink what you like with what you like to eat. But I do think that this is something that, you know, maybe people worry a little bit too much about it. Maybe that's the intimidation factor of, oh, I'm doing a food and wine pairing. But honestly, a lot of things are going to be fine with whatever you want to drink them with. So unless it's drinking a really big Cabernet with a really light fish dish that's totally going to overwhelm your fish, honestly, drink what you like with what you like to eat. I was on the fence about this one because, I mean, wine pairing scares people, but to say it's a myth about it, it, it's really, it does enhance the whole pairing movement of of wine and food. So it's not really a myth. No, because there are rules that if you follow them, it does make the wine and food taste better together. But to say that you could ruin a dish by drinking the wrong wine with that, usually that's not really going to be the case. What's going to happen is, yeah, everything's fine. It's not enhancing the food and the food is not enhancing enhancing the wine like that's what makes a really nice pairing but you're not necessarily going to ruin anything i would think the biggest myth in the, the whole food wine pairing and we've been saying it for years is the white with fish red with right. meat that is the biggest myth to me in food pairing yeah I mean, that's a good place to start, I think, for people, but then there's more to it than that. So it's not quite as simplistic as white with fish, red with meat. Yeah, it's very in-depth. And it, that was probably the most in-depth one of these five. Right. They also talked about, don't worry about using the right words. So... And this is the, the one that I thing. had a problem with. <laughs> because I think that there are, you know, in every field, there's specialized language so that you can have a better time communicating with people. So, I mean, you wouldn't go into your doctor's office and say, "My, I don't know, use some weird term for a body part and hope that your doctor is going to understand what you're talking about. You know, you want to use correct terms so that we can communicate with each other. And I kind of feel that way about wine. So maybe it makes me a little too geeky or hopefully not snobby, but I feel like like there's specialized language so that you can understand each other. And just to say, oh, don't worry about using all those wine terms. I don't know. I have issues with that. I don't know what words. I mean, is it descriptions of wine? Because everybody would have their own descriptions. I, I mean, there's, there's geeky things, aroma, or, you know. Yeah. But I mean, in general, I a- always tell people when you're tasting a wine, if it's red, say cherry. <laughs> if it's white, say, <laughs> say apple. apple. And you can't look like you're using the wrong words right. type of thing. I guess I'm like you on this. It, it, there is a proper, we always say there's a proper words to use. But if you want to, I guess if you want to be a better shopper, then you should know certain things to explain what you like and you'll right. get more value. Right. So like like knowing the difference between fruity and sweet. For me, that's a big one. Sweet means that there's sugar that you can taste, whereas fruity is, oh, I'm tasting apple or I'm tasting peach. And that, I think, is hard because you might not necessarily know what what flavors you're tasting in that. And that's fine. And that comes with experience and that comes with a little bit of learning. But to go into a wine store and hope to get some assistance and not be able to let people know what it is that you're looking for, I, I don't think that's doing you any favors. And I don't think it's 
doing any favors to the person who's trying to help you. When you put it that way, I, I'm thinking a lot of times you'll run into someone that'll come in and they'll say something that's totally, you know, it's totally wrong. Yeah. But you do, you try to decipher in a nice way. What they're looking for. What they're looking for. Sure. So when it says don't worry, in that case, you should worry because <laughs> you'll probably get something. You're going to ask for something. You're hoping that person is going to understand what you're saying right. and you'll probably get the totally wrong. wrong and then thing. you'll leave and you won't be happy with what you brought home. So, yeah. I mean, it's I, not the store's fault. Right. <laughs> I kind of feel like if you have a little bit of understanding of what the right words are to use, the one that you're helping out is yourself. So it's not that, you know, somebody is trying to be a wine snob when they're expecting you to use a little bit of the right terminology. It's that at the end of the day, we as people who work in this industry want to make you happy and want to ha have you have a good experience with that wine in your glass or the bottle that you bring home. So if you have a little bit of understanding of this is how it's going to help you if I talk about it in this way, then it's going to help you drink better. Let's move on to the next Yeah, I could keep item. on going all day with this one. <laughs> don't worry. Uh, let's say don't order the cheapest wine on a wine list. No, it was don't worry if you order, if the, you cheapest order the cheapest wine on the wine list. So I, I think that this is something that, you know, in the old days, the way that a wine list was written, you would get some commodity wine as the least expensive thing on the wine list and it would be marked up crazy high and they would just put it there because they know that people would recognize the name and then they could make some good money off of it. Um, and he's sort of implying that that's no longer the case, that if the, less ex the least expensive thing on the wine list is something that appeals to you and it's what you want to drink, then go ahead and drink it. And I think if it's a label that you recognize and that it's something that you regularly drink and you know what it is and you like it, yeah, of course. It's like, like I'm not going to tell you not to order a cheeseburger off the menu or a piece of pizza because you're familiar with it where you should try something else. No, if that's what you like to eat, that's what you should eat. I, I think what he's more, what this rule is kind of there for is to sort of steer people away from those really big mass market commodity wines that maybe only cost, I don't know, $4 a bottle to buy and you're buying it for $6 a glass on the wine list. And if what do they, you think? If they care about their reputation as a, a good wine list restaurant, right. their inexpensive wine, the most, the least expensive wine in their menu, they would obviously want to stand behind. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's what he's going with here. If you get the least expensive and they're proud of it, they're serving it to you, it's on their list, so go with it. Right. I think the other side of this is the least, I don't think this goes into play the least expensive in a retail store. Okay. Do, you, do you follow me with that, Kim? Like yeah. it, you don't want to walk in, if you just want a bottle of wine, you don't want to just walk into a retail store and buy the cheapest bottle. It's not the same as a wine list right. cheapest bottle. I would agree with that. So, And the other thing was the a wine list, when you, you're saying they do want to make money, so they will find a value wine, but just be careful that it's, make sure they agree with it, I guess is what I'm trying to say with yeah. that. But uh, again, I think a lot of it comes down to that recognition. It's like, yeah, if you like that wine, sure, go ahead and order it. Who cares if it's the least expensive thing on the, on yeah. the list? Yeah. Now, this was something that's always, it's been trending for the last few years. It says, don't stop drinking rosé if it's cold. And years ago, the rosé movement, I wasn't on the bandwagon, but <laughs> I can see it now. I really can. And do you drink it year round? I drink it all year round. And I like this one. And I, I kind of feel like it should be expanded. Like not just don't, don't worry about drinking rosé all year round. I think it's more like don't, worry that it's the right time of year to drink what you like. If you like big red wines, go ahead and drink them in August. I don't care. You're going to have more enjoyment.
enjoyment out of it. You might want to chill it down a little bit so that it's not 80 degrees when you drink it. But yeah, if there's no, I don't think there's any right time or wrong time to enjoy your favorite glass of wine. There are some things that maybe are released seasonally. So you might have more availability of those rosés in the summertime than you do in the wintertime. But if that's what you like to drink, totally drink them all year long. Yeah, wineries are so much more excited about rosés now. I'm getting pre-sales in January, February to start getting them for April. But now I'm finding it more that what am I going to get that's going to last me through the cold months? Uh, Because I need something on the shelf in the cold months. It it used to be as soon as warm weather hit, people want rosés. Now they want them all year long. And it's a great food wine. It's a great appetizer wine. So I can see where it's going. Now they're putting it all different packages and doing it cans and everything else. Mm -hmm. So they're just going with the trend. Love it. Uh, The last one we haven't talked about was don't worry about sulfites. Yeah, don't worry about sulfites. There's way more sulfite, and I know we've talked about this a number of times. There are higher sulfite levels in a whole bunch of other things that you don't even know about than are in your wine. So something like canned soup or dried fruit, French fries, frozen French fries, all sorts of stuff that have much, much higher levels of sulfite as a preservative in those packages than wine do. And if you're getting a headache after a couple of glasses of wines, believe us, it is not the sulfites. It's funny when we agree on something. But, I know, this is one of I the mean, things that we agree on. I mean, it, to me, this was all, It's there's no medical evidence, there's no scientific evidence about the sulfites causing issues. It's like less than 1% of people who have allergies to sulfites even have the effect. Um, so I'm going with the scientific and the medical. But yeah, don't, this is one of the things, strongest myths, I think, in this article to go with. Um, don't worry about the sulfites. And I, I'm finding more and more people don't even see that when they're picking up a wine. Mm. They don't look for it. Anything else from any of these five things, Kim, you want to hit on? No. So we're good. We're good. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. And I can be found at vinitaswineworks.com. Mark can be found at franklinlickers.com. We are talking right now about the top five mistakes that people make with champagne. And by champagne here, we mean champagne with a lowercase c. So any bubbly wine. It doesn't necessarily have to be from the champagne region. It can be Prosecco. It can be Cava from Spain. It can be Spartan sparkling wine from California or New York or Massachusetts. We have a whole bunch of really wonderful things to drink from all over the world that have bubbles in them. This is one of my favorite styles of wine. I'm sure you can tell. Yeah, I know you're the bubbly geek. And I'm glad we said it's sparkling, bubbly (laughs) wine, not just champagne. It it seems like these more of these articles are trending to the top five. Yeah, I have a lot of these. I'm finding that in the news lately, too. They're always saying the top five ways for this or that. But we're following the trend. And this is this is definitely one of the things following lately. So the first one was serving it too cold. And I think this is pretty common for a lot of white wines. And when you take a a bottle of wine right from your refrigerator, it usually is a little too cold. You kind of want to let it warm up a little bit. And the reason for this is because the warmer that a wine is, the more aromas you're going to be able to experience. So if it's just a little bit warmer, you're actually going to be able to taste more out of it. And it'll smell better in your glass. And then as you drink it and as you swallow it, you're going to get more of those aromas and it's 
just gonna it's just gonna taste better. So they're saying forty five degrees, correct? Right. Is the proper temperature. So what's a what's a typical refrigerator? Uh, like forty. Is it that low? Yeah. Mine just has like a one two three. I don't know oh, what the yeah. heck you know the temperature is. And then um, if it's a mini, it's a, our mini fridge sometimes gets too cold and then things start to freeze in there. That's that's not good. Served the, and they, the one of the things to stress with this is if it's too hot, you're gonna create more pressure. It affects the aromatics. So there is a this is really important for right. sparkling wine. See what happened? You really do want to have a nice chilled bottle of sparkling wine I mean cold enough that you're not going to have an explosion when you open the bottle so if you op- are opening a bottle of bubbly and it's too warm you're gonna get a whole lot more fizz coming out of the bottle and maybe have a bit of a overflow then they were talking about a mistake popping the cork right. what, what to me I see all sorts of thing on this champagne is this oh, sparkling excuse me is this <laughs> is a celebratory beverage so there's all excitement of hearing it pop but then they saying you know you should open it with a gentle kiss it's more elegant with the kiss so what was your take on popping the cork i think there's a fine line if you're shaking it up and popping it with a big explosive sound and it's shooting across the room because you're trying to make a big statement that you you know just won the world series or something like that that's one end of the extreme and then the other end is you know just opening it just you know slow enough that it just sort of fizzes out when you when you open open the bottle and i i think that if you want to make that little bit of a popping statement so that people hear it and can kind of get excited and be like "Ooh, there's a bottle of bubbly that just opened up you can open it a little bit faster so that you get a bit of a without it going all over the place. So for me, having a little bit of noise is not a problem. What you just don't want is the wine to be gushing out of the bottle. And we always love to explain or show the proper 45 degree angle, pointing away away from people. Twist the bottom twisting. of the bottle. Don't twist the cork. Yeah. And when you do make that loud uh, cork noise, you, you're losing pressure in the bottle. So you're affecting the bubbles, right. the effervescence. Yeah. So. so that's really what it comes down to is making sure that you are retaining as much bubble in the wine so that you're it's still in there when you're drinking it because you want it to hit your palate and you want to have that you know fun sensation which kind of leads us to the next one which is people pouring champagne wrong either because they're not letting enough of that bubble stay in in the glass or or what have you so what what's your opinion on this one because this one there seemed to be a little bit of disagreement on yeah i mean there's there is a proper way if you just pour it the last standing up you're just going to get all foam that's what i think so and then it takes a while for the foam to dissipate to enjoy it how do you usually serve do you yeah, tilt the glass I usually tilt the glass so I'll tilt the glass and I'll pour it down the side of the glass so that you don't get a lot of that foam which which we call mousse in uh, in champagne terminology but this article was was sort of advising the other way that leave the glass on the table or on your counter and pour directly into the bottom so that you get that and I, I don't know. I mean, the only thing that I can think of that you would want to do that for is because you're, you don't generally swirl sparkling wine because you would eliminate the bubbles. So that would do something that would give you kind of aromas coming out of the glass. So you'd be able to smell it a little bit better. But I don't really like the idea of a lot of foam on the top yeah, of my sparkling wine. And they wine. were stressing a continuous pour, which yeah. either if you angle the glass or don't angle the glass, I mean, typically it is a continuous pour. Yeah. But you're right. It, that was on the fence of, about that. Yeah. It's like pouring a good Guinness. You know, it's important to pour a good right. Guinness. It's important to pour a good glass of champagne. Unless you like the champagne or sparkling wine mm-hmm. foam mustache thing. <laughs> and that led to one of the other things they were saying, serving it in a champagne flute. You do not have to translate leaders. Don't use the traditional champagne. I mean, excuse me, do use, you can get away from it. Right. I you totally can use that a out, different kind of glass. So don't use the champagne. It's very interesting looking at uh, wine glass trends for sparkling wine over time. So a lot of people are familiar with the coupe 
style. So that's like the the little cup that has a really large drinking area, but it's very shallow as opposed to the champagne flute, which is the really tall glass that has just a really small mouth. So the tradition of using the flute instead is that it was supposed to let fewer bubbles escape so that you get to keep that carbonation better. But now the thinking is that, okay, champagne and sparkling wine at the end of the day is still a wine and you want to be able to smell it and you want to be able to get all those aromas because it enhances the flavor of it. So now the the trend is drink it in a regular glass. You might lose some of the bubble, but you're going to be getting more of the flavor. So it's kind of interesting to to follow follow those trends. Yeah. So the flute is so narrow, you get the great bubble effect, but you're limiting the aroma. So what do you, when you're drinking a sparkling, what are you looking for? Are you looking for the bubbles or are you looking for the, the aroma? So, I mean, if you, if you don't care about the aroma and you just like the nice then do it in the flute then do it in the flute like the yeah. but the coupe is too shallow you, you know, yeah. there's no volume in and it either and it's small yeah. and yeah, that I feel like it lets the bubbles go away really fast so I use them for chocolate mousse and other fun desserts so I don't tend yeah. to use them for sparkling wine but I mean I could probably be won over by the argument of pouring champagne or other sparkling wines into a regular white wine glass so that you do get more of the aromas so I might need to I might need to experiment a you little bit with want, that you just want more ounces <laughs> Glass, I just right? want my wine. Yeah. And the last thing they talked about getting on that was fill levels. Mm. It says do not fill it to the top, which any wine, this is true. I mean, right. you want to leave some airspace so you can, if you swirl or get some aromatics going. And especially as wine glasses get bigger and bigger and bigger, and this is another trend that we've been seeing, is that 50 years ago, a little bit more, you know, wine glasses were a whole heck of a lot smaller than they are now. Now you go into a restaurant and you're routinely given 20 ounce glass with six ounce pour in there. So you might have a bigger wine glass and you still, I mean, you don't want to put a half a bottle of wine in that wine glass. You know, not only is that not particularly smart for your consumption levels, but you still want to have enough in there that pouring it or swirling it around and getting the aromas and you're getting the flavors, but you, you don't you don't need that much, even though the, the wine glass has gotten humongous. Yeah. Traditionally, a sparkling at a wedding or something, it's just a toast. It's a small, so yeah, it's a small You just pour want anyway. a small volume. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine with your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine, and we thank you for listening to us.